some of you may be aware, but I have a degree in behavioral sciences. I went to school and I studied sociology. One of my favorite things to do uh, uh, in my sociology classes was to conduct social experiments. So I'm going to conduct a social experiment and you're going to help me. It's very simple. I want you to reach over and the person you're sitting next to, uh, or whether or not they know you, doesn't matter, uh, grab a hold of their hand. Make like a handshake so you can both, there you go, just reach over. There you go. You can do handshake style. You can do like bro style, whatever. Just hold on to them, all right? And then we're going to conduct a simple social experiment. By the way, if their hand gets a little sweaty, that's a different experiment altogether. So just hold on. All right. So just, just hold their hand. And then I'm going to make a series of statements, okay? Simple statements. And what I want you to do is I want you to squeeze their hand to the level with which you agree to the statement that I make. You ready? Very simple. Let's try a simple one. For example, are you ready? Everybody ready? Okay. I'll make a statement, and then you squeeze to the level to which you agree with the statement. Statement number one, I like chocolate. Okay, okay. I see some of you all squeezing great. Fantastic. All right, so we know that it works. Let's try a, very, a, a different one. Uh, okay, I wish it would rain more. Okay, all right. You don't have to nod. Just let your squeeze and do the talking. All right, here we go. Let's try another one. Let's try another one. Um, I really like my job. Okay, not so much, not so much. Okay, let's try a different one. Um, I am willing to pay extra taxes so the Chargers get a new stadium. Okay, Charger fans out there squeezing. Okay, good. Let's try a different one. Uh, um, <clears throat> I wish the preacher would preach really long today. And he's squeezing going. <laughs> okay, just one more, just one more, just one more. I wish I had more money. Okay, okay, okay. You can let go now. <laughs> you can let go of that death grip. I know that last one left some imprints on some of y'all's hands. Because almost everyone universally wishes they had more money, right? As we're starting off this year, as you're making plans, some of you uh, have decided that this year you're going to pursue uh, a, a better financial year to, to, to maybe get your finances in order, maybe save a little more, maybe get an upgrade on your job or your position, but many, many, many of us wish we had more money. Let's talk about money for a minute. I was doing some research, and uh, I, I looked up on the Internet um, to see what the average household income of uh, American household is. Does anybody know what the average household income in America is? You don't have to guess. I'll tell you. Oh, oh, hang on a second. Oh, there we go. We'll get to that in a second. All right. The average household income is $51,939. That's an average. Obviously, a lot of people make less, a lot of people make more, but that's an average. That's an average household, all right? And uh, to some of you, that might seem like a lot of money. To some of you, that might seem like not a whole lot. But through the miracle of the internet, we can find out where Americans place in terms of our, um, how rich we are compared to the rest of the world. In fact, there's a website called the Global Rich List that you can go on and type in your annual income, and it will tell you 
where you rank amongst the world's uh, rich. In fact, it'll tell you what number of person you are. So I decided to do that with the average American household income, 51900 Okay, now, can I please have that first slide? With an, average, with an, with an income of 51939 that places you in the top 0.28% uh, in terms of riches. That means, you see, that's you. You see a little bubble at the very top? That's you. That means that over, over 99% of the world is poorer than the average American household. That makes you the 16... What is that? 16,839,173rd person, richest person on earth by income. Um, that means we are, on average, far richer than everyone in the world. And if you go in there, globalrichlist.com, I know some of you guys are probably getting ready to go in there right now. Just type in your own income. It'll tell you exactly where you, where you line up. But the funny thing is, even as you're looking at that, you're saying to yourself, not possible, right? Because it doesn't feel like we're that rich, right? It doesn't feel like it. We don't feel like we're richer than 99% of the world. In fact, most of us wish we had more money because we think we could use it or do more with it. So I've been asking myself, why is it that we are obviously richer than the rest of the world, but we feel like we could use more money? Where does our money go? Where does, where does your money go? Do you know that the average, uh, on an average year, Americans spend money on a whole host of things? Um, I was telling uh, First Service this morning. <clears throat> According to research uh, by Reuters, uh, Americans spend $550 million a year on pretzels. Pretzels. Um, $550 million a year on pretzels. In fact... Uh, last year, Americans spent $10.7 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars shopping. Um, the uh, author of the article says that with that much money, you can buy 2,000 aircraft carriers, 300 private islands, and still have money left over for a latte. But not a, not a venti, just a grande. <laughs> last year, Americans spent $117 billion on fast food. On fast food, $117 billion on fast food. Uh, we were laughing this morning. Uh, last year, Americans spend $30 billion at the dollar store. You know what I'm talking about, right? Dollar store. It seems cheap, but $30 billion worth. Um, uh, we spent money on lawn care, $40 billion on lawn care last year alone. Just almost as much as we spent on child care, $47 billion. We spend $500 million a year on Twinkies. Mm. $65 billion on soda. $65 billion on soda. This is just Americans. <clears throat> I found this one interesting. We spend $10 billion on romance novels. $10 billion on romance novels. And only 11 on engagement rings. Engagement, $11 billion on engagement. So a lot of people are hoping... <laughs> There's an article that was found in the USA Today that says 20 ways Americans are uh, wasting their money. Let me read you some of them, all right? Simple ones. Uh, they say unclaimed, unclaimed tax refunds. So some of y'all need to go to H&R Block. And by the way, we know this is true because every year you guys forget your, your tax-deductible contributions 
There's, we have stacks every year that you don't pick up. I'm going to mail them to you this year because I don't want you to miss out on your tax refund. Um, H&R Block says, we'll get the billions back, America. I'm, I'm sure you've been seeing that. Unclaimed tax refunds. Um, we waste money on deal sites. Some like Groupon and others. Some are good, but a lot of us buy things that we actually never use. We waste money on bad health habits. According to USA Today, last Halloween alone, we spent $2.8 billion on candy just on Halloween. $2.8 billion just on Halloween candy. ATM fees, uh, bank charges, late fees on credit cards, gambling, uh, other vices, unused gift cards, that's what they're saying, speedy shipping, Um, unused gym memberships, premium cable packages, daily coffee trips. But the one that really caught my attention was this one, wasted food. According to USA Today and the National Resource Defense Council, Americans waste, oh, you're not going to believe this, Americans waste (laughs) by throwing away unwanted snacks and meals. Let this leftovers or unwanted snacks. Americans waste $165 billion annually on wasted food. $165 billion annually on wasted food. It's amazing, right? Where does our money go? It seems like it just kind of disappears. And there's this gap between what I think I need and what I think I have. So somebody did some research on the ways spending has changed over the last 100 years. And they call it the 100-year squeeze. Can I have the next slide, please? It might be a little hard for you to see, but you'll figure this out. Uh, The blue columns are the way Americans spent money in the 1900s, a a century ago. The red ones are 50 years ago in the 50s, and the green ones are um, in the the 2000s, so 100 years later. This is how our spending patterns have changed. In the 1900s, over 40% of an American's budget monthly, annually, was spent on food, spent on food. And uh, housing was uh, around 23, 23%. If you fast forward to this century, we spend very little on food by comparison, just about 13% on food, but over 32% on housing. So what does that tell us? Food is cheap. Food has gotten considerably cheaper. And housing costs have gone up. I don't know if you can tell, but in the 1900s, they spent a lot more money on clothes. So we should pat ourselves on the back a little bit, I guess. Um, healthcare costs have remained the same, but in terms of, um, in terms of uh, percentages and entertainment, we spent a lot more money on entertainment. But what's fascinating about this, uh, the study, the research, is, uh, is that things have significantly changed according to what we think we're entitled to. I'm just going to read this straight from the article. Um, The author's name is Derek Thompson. He wrote in in The Atlantic, and it says this. In 1900, the Bureau of Labor Statistics counted three categories as necessities, housing, food, and apparel. Just three things they counted as necessities. In the last 100 years, we've added to the list, obviously, healthcare is necessary, and for most people, transportation also has become necessary. Uh, For many of us, higher education is a necessity. But he writes, we have new expectations for what our money should buy, and we have earned the right to expect more from life in America. 
Historical context shouldn't cheapen middle-class suffering. Today's suffering is real. Unemployment is high. Wage growth is flat. We are squeezed by the rising health care costs and the uh, scarcity of affordable housing. And yet, he writes, who can deny that we are richer? A century ago, we spent more, half, more than half our money on food and clothes. Today, we spend more than half of our money on housing and transportation. He writes, our ambitions turn from bread and shirts to ownership and highways. We are subtle victims of the expectations that 100 years of wealth have bought. Interesting, right? We live in a world that has created for us an idea or a belief that life must be made up of a certain kind of living, a certain way of living. The research goes on to say that in the 50s, in 1949, the average house, the average new house, was less than 1,000 square feet. So as people were buying homes, they were living in less than 1,000 square feet. Can you? In 2000, the average new home was over 2,000 square feet. So we have come to believe and expect that our money should buy us, and that's why the housing versus food, you see that, that big significant change. And although we are far richer and have more money, by the level of the squeezing that you felt, <laughs> we all wish things were different. We all wish things were different. So where does our money go? Why are we so squeezed? Apparently, a lot of people are living on credit. Can I have the next slide, please? Hello. Thank you. As of December 2014, the U.S. household consumer debt, average credit card debt, $15,000 Average credit card, average mortgage debt, 155. They're not from San Diego, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> average student loan debt, 32,000. They did not go to private school. We carry significant amount of debt, and with debt comes uh, interest. And interest is money that you're making for for somebody else. Can I have the next slide, please? <clears throat> total debt. Look at this. Americans. Total debt, 11.74 trillion in debt. Almost one, almost, wait, almost a trillion dollars in credit card debt alone, over $8 trillion in mortgages, $1 trillion in student loans. We are in debt to our eyeballs, as, as they say, right? So part of our challenge is though we are far richer, in fact, richer than 99% of the world, we're sort of living in this perpetual squeeze between what we earn and the way we think that should entitle us to live. Thank you. You can, you can take that down, please. So why is that, friends? Why is it that money is so difficult for us to handle? Why is it that we wish we could and we try, but we're just never able to get ahead? What, what is it about money that seems to have such a, a power over us that even though we've made a conscious decision to do things differently, our habits seem to stay the same. Andy Stanley, author and pastor, says it's greed. It's simple greed, American greed. And this is how he defines greed. Greed is simply the assumption that everything that comes your way is for your consumption. That's what greed is. He says, greed is the assumption that if it gets placed in my hands, it's for my consumption. 
He suggests that one of the reasons we struggle so much with money is because when we get it, when we earn it, when it's given to us, when it is, uh, inher- we, we inherit it, we then wrap our hands around it and believe that it is mine, all mine. It sounds funny, but it's true. And it's the way we've been taught to live. I shared this poem with the first service this morning because it just made me laugh. I found it on scrapbook.com. Maybe we can read it together. Can I have the next slide, please? It's called The Toddler's Rules. Toddler's Rules. Number one, if I want it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Next slide, please. If we're building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it just looks like mine, it's mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. And if I give it to you and I change my mind, it's mine. Toddler's rules. Funny, right? Because you can see a kid and you have probably a child in your life. And yet this mentality dominates our American living. We have come to believe that everything that touches our hands is mine. And Andy Stanley says, meant for my consumption. But the end result of that is that we live a life full of wishing and wanting and never of satisfaction, never of contentment or fulfillment. Today I want to share with you a lesson that David, the great uh, leader of the Israelites, is trying to teach us through his writings and his example. And I want to share this with you, my friends, because one of our challenges this year is to make this our best year ever. And if we're going to make this our best year ever, we have got to look at our finances. We've got to wrestle with and deal with our finances. This could be our best financial year, but only if we learn this lesson. Turn your Bibles, please, if you would, to the book of 1 Chronicles. We are in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Last week, we talked about how David uh, was trying to teach us one of life's best lessons about how to live through difficult circumstances. And we read last week in the book of 1 Samuel that David was a person who went from rags to riches. He was a a shepherd boy who ended up in the palace getting ready to be the next king, but then suddenly found himself on the run, being hunted down like an animal, and eventually ended up in a cave fearing for his life. But in that cave, David wrote words of praise. You remember, we read them last week. And David said, no matter what is going on around me, I don't have to be afraid. In fact, his words are, of whom shall I be afraid? See, he believed That no matter what the circumstances were, there was one who was always going to be in charge. That his God, his Father, would listen to his cry and respond to him. And so he decided he would praise God no matter the circumstances. And I propose to you that if we're going to make this our best year ever, we can get through anything this year throws at us if we learn to put ourselves in a posture of praise, in a posture of worship, to recognize that God is good. And that the more we praise him, the more perspective will come to our eyes about our circumstances. They don't have to change. We have to change. David 
went from that moment in the cave where he, where he praised God despite the fact that he was fearing for his life and over a wild set of events became king. We find a story in First and Second Kings. We find David rising to prominence and after Saul, the, the previous king, had killed himself, David became the new king. And he took over the throne, and under his leadership, Israel prospered. In fact, he reigned over Israel for 40 years. And during those 40 years, they had many military conquests. David was wildly successful by the grace of God. On the other hand, David made a lot of mistakes. He had some poor parenting decisions. He had some illicit love affairs. He had some moments where he doubted God, and, and there were consequences that followed. Yet at the end of his life, David returned to God and placed his faith back in God. And the Bible tells us that God blessed him tremendously. And here, in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, David is trying to share one last lesson. In fact, these are some of the last actions that he takes. And I want you to read along with me. I told first service this morning that when David was young and when he had become king, God had placed in him a dream to build God a permanent house. David said to himself, I live in a fancy uh, palace. I have all these amazing things, but God's house is nothing but a tent. And David, there, drew a, a, there grew a desire in his heart to build God a permanent temple, a permanent sanctuary. And over the course of time during his years as king, God blessed him with the ability to understand a design for the temple. And David had wanted to gather all the materials necessary to build God a permanent sanctuary. And yet, due to some of his missteps, he could never complete the task. But at the end of his life, he had finally gathered enough materials and got the plans together and lined everything up. And yet God came to him and said, no, David, it is not for you. It will be for your son. And so what we find in chapter 29 of, of the book of First Chronicles is David passing the baton, the mantle to his son. But in that moment of, of, of putting his authority, his king's authority to his son, he also teaches us a lesson about finances. Read along with me. I'm going to read quickly because y'all are hungry probably. This is what it says, chapter 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, and he gathered all the people of Israel my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. David said, my son is going to build this temple for God, and the task is great. And my son is young and inexperienced, but, he said, verse 2, with all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. All of these in large quantities. In fact, if you read the story um, back in 1 Kings, David had over time amassed large quantities of these precious metals to build the temple. But here, near the end of his life, he does something kind of outrageous. Check it out. Verse 3, after gathering the people and saying, my son will take care of this my son will complete this task. He says, besides, besides all that I've done in preparation, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have already provided for his holy temple, I now hand over my personal treasures. Think of this as your retirement account, your IRAs, or whatever other things you have been saving up over time or hope to save over time. David had amassed some wealth, 
his personal treasures. But he says, here, now, as I'm getting ready to pass the baton to my son, even though I've gathered all the necessary materials, I now hand over my personal treasures of gold. Look, verse 4, I hand over 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 of refined silver. So I told first service I did the math. Uh, three um, <clears throat> three thousand talents of gold turns out to be a hundred metric tons of gold, which is a hundred thousand kilos of gold. Um, that's a lot of kilos. To give you a visual perspective, <laughs> it's about um, sixty-six Camrys, Toyota Camrys, <laughs> made of solid gold. <laughs> they each weigh about fifteen hundred kilos each. Line up. That's how much gold he had in his personal personal treasure. And to give you a dollar figure for it, each kilo of gold today is worth $38,667. That means David turns over at the end of his life his personal storehouse of $3.8 billion in gold. Can you imagine doing that? Can you see yourself doing that? Of course not. <laughs> you want more money. <laughs> David had it. David had it all. He turns over uh, 240 metric tons of silver, which is a, a, a measly $125 million in today's dollars. But he turns it over and he says, even though I've worked really hard and provided everything, I now hand over my personal, my personal treasures. And then he turns to his people and he says, now who is willing to consecrate himself today with the Lord? And the Bible tells us that his people were so moved by his act of giving that they came forward and started putting their gold up front. They started putting down their precious stones and their silver. And the Bible tells us here that they gave 5,000 talents of gold, which is 170 metric tons, $6.5 billion worth of today's gold. And the people were moved by the generosity of their king and how even in his old age, he didn't want to leave this for his son. He wanted to hand it over for the glory of his God. But there's a reason why. There's a reason why David is able to do this. There's a reason why David does not hang on to this money at his old age. One, maybe he realized his time was coming to a close. That he could have passed it to his sons and he had many. But I think the reason is written here in his own words. Let's read along. Verse 10, chapter 29. And David praised the Lord in the presence of everyone, and he said these words. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory and the majesty, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. You are exalted. Wealth and honor come from you. You are ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. True to the lessons that he had learned when he had nothing and was in a cave, David praised God when he was poor and now when he was wealthy beyond our imagination. He continues, verse 14, But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have only given you what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, and as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a holy temple, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. 
All of it belongs to you. David had come to realize through his lifetime of experience that every good thing comes from God, even money. But you and I don't believe that. You and I think money is mine, all mine. You and I have come to believe that when we work hard and when we, when we get a job and we produce, that somehow what is generated by that is a result of my strength, my power, my skill, and my ability. And because we feel that way, that's why we hang on to it so tightly and we want for more. We believe that whatever we have earned gives us the power and authority to make things happen in the world. David had all the money and all the power, but he makes a startling claim. It all belongs to you, God. It all belongs to you. He goes on, verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you are pleased with integrity. And all these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willing your people are who have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers in Israel, keep this desire in your hearts of your people forever. And keep their hearts loyal to you. David is making a startling promise here and a request from God that he would keep in our hearts, his people forever, this desire to believe that everything comes from God. That everything belongs to God. You know why, why that makes a difference? Because when it all belongs to you, you get to decide what to do with it. And your decisions determine how you feel about yourself. So if you're having trouble handling money, you, you, you come to believe that maybe the world is not being fair to you. Maybe you should get paid more. Maybe we're entitled to more. If it's mine, if, if I think it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If we work together on something, all the pieces are mine. David says something completely different here. And I think it's a lesson that you and I need to wrestle with if we're going to make this our best year ever. Does it belong to me or does it belong to God? And I'm not talking about the 10% or the offering you put on the plate. It's got nothing to do with that. David is handing over his entire personal riches. Fascinating, right? How could a man give up all this that he worked to earn all his life? It's because he realizes that it all belongs to God. And that God has so much more. So much more. If only he had realized this much sooner, and the same goes for us. If only we had realized much sooner that everything belongs to God and he wants to give us more. Sometimes God will actually give us more money. But not so that you and I can grow in our greed, but so that you and I can in turn bless other people. Generosity Pastor Eugene Cho says, is God's cure for our greed. Generosity. That's what David is doing. Giving away his money. I want to tell you a story about John D. Rockefeller. You might recognize the name, you might not. Can I have that last picture on the wall, please? Hello. One more. There it is. This is uh, the Rockefeller Center. 
uh, in uh, downtown New York. This is where they do the ice skating, you know, at, uh, uh, at Christmas time when they do the big Christmas tree lighting. I know because I was right on the side. <laughs> Couldn't see the tree, but I know it was there. This building um, uh, was uh, uh, purchased by John D. Rockefeller, um <clears throat> and uh, it bears his name. John D. Rockefeller was an oil magnate. At age 23, he became a millionaire, and by age 50, he was America's first billionaire. And this was 50 years ago. <laughs> um, he became America's first billionaire. In fact, every decision that he had was very astute, and he consolidated his uh, oil magnet business until he had, in fact, a monopoly. Over 90% of all the refineries and pipelines in the U.S. belonged to him. In fact, he owned so much that the U.S. had a, put into law an antitrust law <laughs> just to break up his monopoly. And, and, and John Rockefeller became the world's richest, wealthiest man at, by age 50. But by the time he turned 53, he became very, very ill. His entire body was full of pain. He developed alopecia and lost all his hair. Worse yet, he had major intestinal issues and could not eat anything but a little bit of milk and crackers. So he had all the money in the world, but he was looking at death. An associate wrote these words, he could not sleep and would not smile and nothing in life meant anything to him. His Highly skilled personal physicians predicted that he would die within a year, and the year went by agonizingly slow. And as he approached death, he awoke one morning with the vague remembrances of a dream. I'm reading the story written by Brian Cluth, and it says, He could barely recall the dream, but he knew it had something to do with not being able to take any of his successes with him into the next world. And the man who could control the business world suddenly realized that he was not in control of his own life, so he was left with a choice. He called his attorneys, accountants, and managers and announced that he wanted to channel his assets to hospitals, research, and mission work. And on that day, John D. Rockefeller established the Rockefeller Foundation. This new direction eventually led to the discovery of penicillin, cures for current strains of malaria, tuberculosis, and diphtheria. The list of discoveries resulting from his choice is enormous. Uh, he developed the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, as well as many others, Chicago University, all through his foundation. But perhaps the most amazing part of Rockefeller's story is that the moment that he began to give back a portion of all he had earned, his body's chemistry was altered so significantly that he got better. Over time, he gave away half of his wealth, over $500 million dollars. It looked as if he would die at the age of 53, but he lived to be 98 years old. Rockefeller learned that gratitude gave him back his health. It made him whole. It made him whole. He realized the lesson David is trying to teach us. It's not mine, all mine. It all belongs to God. And when I can finally accept that, then maybe I won't be defined by how much or how little I have. But more importantly, be defined by the one who calls me son, the one who would give his life for me, and the one who calls me home.